Thanks for downloading today's podcast of Clearly Seen, taught by Mike Kokoris. I think you're going to enjoy what Mike has for you today. And if you're ever in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles, we invite you to Lindley Church. Mike would love to meet you personally and answer any questions you have. Feel free to email your comments and questions to michael at kokoris.com. Now, let's hear from Mike. Bible-taught Christians know that the Bible teaches that we are to walk by faith. But what does that mean? I remember when I first heard that kind of expression, I thought, what in the world are you talking about? What does it mean? What does it look like to say that you walk by faith, that you live by faith? Well, there's a story in the Old Testament that gives us an example of somebody who did that. And what is significant about that particular story is that the New Testament points to it as an example of living by faith. So I want us to look at it in order to see what the Scripture says is one example of what it takes to live by faith. Let's start with the Old Testament story. It's recorded in Genesis chapter 48. So will you turn with me to Genesis chapter 48? And I'm going to begin reading with verse 1. It says, And it came to pass after these things that Joseph was told, Indeed, your father is sick. And he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And and Jacob was told, Look, your son Joseph is coming to you. And Israel strengthened himself and sat up on the bed. Now, we need just a little bit of review as to what's going on here. If you'll recall the story as it's recorded in the book of Genesis, Uh, There was a famine in the land of Israel, and Jacob and the whole family ended up going down to Egypt. And there they met Joseph, who had gone before because his brothers had sold him into slavery. And we've already seen there was this great reunion. Uh, Now, the Bible says in chapter 48, verse 1, "...and it came to pass after these things." And after these things is the, re, the, the journey of Jacob and the family uh, to Egypt and the reunion of Jacob and Joseph. So after all that happened, they've had the reunion, they've settled in Goshen, they are all settled in. The Bible says that Joseph was told that his father was Now, you'll recall that Joseph at this point is second in command. I've called him the prime minister or vice president or something like that. He's the second most powerful official in all of Egypt. And the children of Israel have settled in another part of the land of Egypt. So the text tells us in verse 1, he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, and he went to see his father, their grandfather. So verse 2 says, 
Jacob was told, look, your son Joseph is coming. And Israel strengthened himself and sat up in bed. Now, again, you will recall that Jacob's name was changed to Israel. And this verse includes both his names. Verse 2 says, and Jacob was told. Then it says, and Israel strengthened himself. So that this is almost to say that Israel is his more spiritual name. It was the one given by God. So that he hears that Joseph is coming and he strengthens himself. I read this again today, thinking of speaking on it tonight, and I thought to myself, how often has that happened? That an elderly person is sick, nigh unto death, and uh, they know that something is going to happen in the family, and they strengthen themselves. Have you ever heard stories like that? I've heard a number of them. Uh, Like uh, the elderly person waiting for a son or a daughter to come from traveling to come back to the city, or uh, a parent waiting, or a grandparent waiting for the wedding Uh, You know, there are all kinds of stories. Anyway, it just struck me that that's perhaps the kind of thing that's going on here. At any rate, uh, Jacob is clearly sick. He's going to pass away shortly. And Joseph is going to go see him, and he takes his two sons with him. Verse 3, Then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make you a multitude of people and give this land to your descendants after you as an everlasting possession. So, Jacob says to his son, Joseph, the Lord has appeared to me when I was back in Canaan and and blessed me. And the blessing consisted of two things. This is very important. He said, uh, I'm going to make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make you a multitude of people. So the first part of the blessing was that you're going to be a large group of people. Out of you and your children are going to become a multitude of people. Then verse 4 says, and the second part of the blessing is, I'm going to give you this land to your descendants after you as an everlasting possession. So God blessed Jacob by giving him an abundance of descendants and the land. He gave him people, the promise of people, and the promise of them having a possession of the land that would be an everlasting possession. So that's sort of the introduction. Uh, Jacob says to my, his son Joseph, uh, God has blessed me. What happens next is really interesting. Verse 5, Jacob is talking and says, Now your two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. As Reuben and Simeon, they shall be mine. 
Now, this is very important. Jacob is going to adopt the two sons of Joseph. They're his grandchildren, granted. But he says, I'm going to make them mine like Reuben and Simeon. Reuben and Simeon were sons like Joseph. So he says to Joseph, I'm going to take your two sons and I'm going to make them as if they are my sons. So what verse 5 is describing for us is an adoption. He's going to adopt them as if they are his children. Now it'll become clear in a minute why that's important. They need to be direct heirs of Jacob, not just through Joseph. So, verse 6 says, Your offspring whom you begat after them shall be yours. They will be called by your name of their brothers in their inheritance. So he says, look, uh, the future children that you have, are going to have an inheritance, but I'm adopting these two that you brought to me. Then he, something very strange goes on in verse 7, he simply talks about Rachel. Uh, That was his, the wife that he dearly loved and who was the mother of Joseph, by the way. And many Bible teachers come to this passage and say, this is just all out of place. Uh, He talks about the fact that she died and he buried her uh, in Bethlehem. So why does he bring that up? And frankly, I'm not real sure, except that she was the mother of Joseph and she died prematurely. And it's as if he is saying, uh, I'm going to adopt your sons as if your mother and I had had them and we adopting them as our sons. Now, this is the the first part, the first phase of this story. There are actually three parts to it, and this is the first part, where he simply adopts uh, his two grandsons as if they were sons. Now, what is significant is this. He says, as I pointed out, the Lord blessed me. The Lord promised me that I was going to have multiple descendants and those descendants were going to have the land. And I'm going to adopt your two sons and make them as if they were my sons. And the whole point of this, it seems to me, is that that he's believing what God said. God said to him, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to give you descendants, and I'm going to give the descendants the land. And so as an act of faith, he says, and I, to Joseph, I'm going to adopt my two grandsons and bring them to the level of my own children. I'm going to adopt them because I believe God's promise that uh, he said he was going to give me many descendants, and he's going to give my descendants the, the land. So this is an act of faith. And so it seems to me that this is an illustration, an example of living by faith. And it's nothing more than believing what God says. In this case, I'm going to give you multiple descendants and I'm going to give them the land. 
and he's believing it and acting accordingly. So the first element in walking by faith or living by faith is that you take God at his word. You believe what he has to say. Some people seem to think that faith is what you do when there are no facts. You know, when you run out of facts, then you just are left to faith. In the Bible, faith is the exact opposite of that. It's not a leap in the dark. It's believing facts. It's believing what God said. As a matter of fact, from a biblical point of view, you cannot exercise faith until there are facts. Uh, Some people want to say, well, I'm going to believe it anyway, but that's not biblical faith. Faith isn't, I'm going to pull something out of the air and hope that it comes true. Faith in the Bible is saying, God said this, and I believe that's true, and I'm going to act accordingly. It's believing facts, not believing something that's not factual. So walking by faith is believing what God said. It's believing God's word. Now what happens next is almost strange. We need to pick up the story at verse 8. Then Israel, that is Jacob, saw Joseph's son and said, Who are these? And Joseph said to his father, They are my sons, whom God has given me in this place. And he said, Bring them to me, and I will bless them. Now, the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. Then Joseph brought them near to him, and he kissed them and embraced them. Now this sounds like he's never met them before, which we know is not true. Earlier in the book of Genesis, we were told that... uh, They had met them before. As a matter of fact, uh, just look at verse 5, where it says, your two sons, Ephraim and uh, Manasseh, who are born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to Egypt, are mine. He just had adopted them. So in verse 8 it says, who are they? So what's going on? Well, obviously, in light of verse 5, verse 8 is not saying he's asking for information. He knew who they were. He'd just been introduced to them. Um, He'd just met them, if not before, certainly at this occasion. So he's confirming who they are and wants to make sure because he's losing his eyesight. His eyesight is not as strong as it used to be. And so uh, he says, you know, who are them? Bring them here. And he hugs them and he kisses them. So the question in verse 8 is not for information, it's for confirmation. And so when he confirmed who they were, he had them brought to him, he hugs them, he kisses them, and he blesses them. Now, this is where the story gets real interesting. Uh, Pick it up at verse 11. And Israel said to Joseph, I had not thought to see your face, but in fact God also has shown me your offspring. 
Now, in order to appreciate that verse, you have to remember that in the book of Genesis, Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers, and Jacob, his father, thought that he was dead and that he would never see him again. That's a huge issue in the latter part of the book of Genesis. And so what he says at this point is, I didn't think I would ever see your face again, and now I'm looking at your children, which is an indication of God's great blessing to him. As a matter of fact, verse 11 says, but in fact God has also shown me your offspring. So he's acknowledging the faithfulness of God. And in light of his unfaithfulness and fickleness, that is quite a contrast. He was not faithful to the Lord, and he was a deceiver and conniver, and yet he says, God has greatly blessed me. So Joseph, I want you to know, I'm, I'm grateful to the Lord for what he's done. So, verse 12, Joseph brought them from his, uh, beside his knees, and he bowed down with his face to the earth. And, he, and Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand toward Israel's left, and Manasseh with his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. Now, what in the world is going on there? In order to explain this, I need to illustrate this, and I'm going to ask Madell to come here for a second. Uh, you're the closest, so come here. <laughs> now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be Joseph, and she's going to be Jacob. And I have two sons, right? And I've got one on my right hand and one on my left. So, if I bring the one on my right hand and place him beside you, I've placed it by your left. left. See that? And the one on my right hand, if I bring him to you, I place it on, on your left hand? my left hand. Thank you. I place it on your right. right. So you get the idea? Right hand, left hand, but he's presenting them to his father, so it's to the father's left and right, left and right. opposite. Thank you. Great <laughs> illustration. But that's what this verse is saying. So what's the point of all of that? Well, what we're doing here is describing uh, the ritual of adoption. This apparently was the custom. So uh, we are told in verse 14, and Jacob, Israel, stretched out his right hand and laid it on Ephraim's head, who was the youngest. Do you see that? Uh, that's the key, because the oldest son got a double blessing. And the oldest son was blessed with the right hand. So what happens is, Joseph, understanding this, takes... Manasseh in the right hand, but that's to the left hand of Jacob, and he takes his other son, uh, Ephraim, to the right hand of Jacob. What goes on in this passage is they are placed properly by Joseph, and Jacob 
crosses his hands. He's now going to give the, uh, the, the double blessing, not to the oldest, which he should do, which was the custom, but he gives it to the younger. And that's what this text is saying. It's a little complicated, but look at verse 13. Joseph took both Ephraim with his right hand. Why? Because Ephraim was the oldest. So he took him, uh, I'm sorry, took him, he's the youngest. He took him with the right hand, and uh, that was Israel's left hand. And Manasseh with his left hand, he took the Israel's, Jacob's right hand. So he presented them right, but verse 14 says, Joseph, I'm sorry, Jacob, Israel, stretched out his right hand and laid it on Ephraim's head, who was the youngest. That's the key to the passage. He took his right hand and he laid it on the youngest and not the oldest. And his left hand on Manasseh's, guiding his hand knowingly, for Manasseh was the firstborn. So he is going to do something that is, so to speak, backwards. And so, verse 15 says, he blessed Joseph. I thought he was blessing the kids, the grandkids. But verse 15 says he blessed Joseph and said, God before whom my father Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has fed me all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, a Hebrew word that could involve trouble. Bless the lads. Now look at verse 15. He blessed Joseph. Verse 16, he blessed the lads. So part of blessing the father was to bless the children. That my name be named upon them. And the name of my father fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. So God has blessed me with the promise of a multitude, and they would get the land, and I'm blessing these two grandchildren as if they were my children, that they would have a multitude of children, and that they would inherit the land. So again, he is exercising faith by believing that God is going to fulfill his promise through Joseph and Joseph's two sons, which he's adopting as his. Verse 17, now when Joseph saw his father lay his right hand on the head of Ephraim, the youngest, he was supposed to do that to the oldest, it displeased him, so he took hold of his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But the father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people and also shall be great. But truly, this younger brother shall be greater 
than his descendants, and he should become a multitude, uh, become a multitude of nations. Wow. Jacob deliberately blessed the younger with the firstborn blessing. He deliberately gave him the double blessing. Now, what in the world, or maybe I should say what in the word is going on? This is the fourth time in the book of Genesis this kind of thing has happened. And Jacob knew that. If you'll recall, This is uh, not the first time this has happened. Remember Isaac and Ishmael? Who was the oldest? Ishmael. They were twins, and he came out first. Right? But Jacob, uh, Isaac, I should say, got blessed over Ishmael. Jacob got blessed over Esau. By the way, I said they were twins. That's not right. It was Jacob and Esau that were twins, not uh, Isaac and Ishmael. But Isaac and Ishmael uh, were both the sons and of, of Abraham, and Ishmael was the oldest, but Isaac got the blessing. Then the twins came along, and it was Isaac, uh, Jacob and Esau, and it was Esau that came out first. He should have gotten the firstborn blessing, but Jacob got it, not Esau. So that's the second case. The third case is in this very passage. Uh, He blessed Joseph over Reuben. And now he is going to bless Ephraim over Manasseh. So this is um, out of the ordinary. It's out of the custom of the day. But it's the way God works throughout the book of Genesis. So, it's not what is normally done, but Jacob understood the way God works. And I'd like to highlight that. We can see this blessing in the process of being fulfilled later. That is, this blessing that the youngest would be greater than the older, came true in the book of Judges. Uh, The combined tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh increased from 72,700 in the second year after the Exodus to 85,240 years later. By contrast, the tribes of Reuben and Cinnamon decreased from 105,800 to 65,930 during the same period. So God has blessed these two. It comes fulfilled in the book of uh, Judges. But God blessed the younger more than the older. And that seems to be the way God works in the book of Genesis. Now, I started out saying that this was an illustration of walking by faith. So let me suggest that in the first part of this story, it highlights the fact that God appeared to Jacob and said, I'm going to bless your descendants, I'm going to give them the land, and he acted accordingly. In that part of the story, 
He's believing God's word. In the second part of the story, he blesses the youngest more than the older, and that is an indication that he understood God's way of working. God does not always do what is natural. God does not always do what is according to custom. God very often blesses the most unlikely, mainly because they are trusting him. So this reveals, indicates, that Jacob understood not just God's word, but God's way. Or to say it all very simply, we think we understand how God works, we expect God to work a certain way, and God very often fools us and works a way contrary to what we think or what we would expect. And that's part of working, or living, I should say, or walking by faith. It's understanding God's ways. I'm going to tell you, after studying the scripture for years and years and years, uh, I think that uh, I have a harder and harder time listening to preachers. And it's not that they don't know the Lord or don't love the Lord, they do. It's that so often I hear some preacher on the radio and I think he doesn't understand the way God works at all. That one of the things I've picked up is, wow, that's the way he works. Isn't that funny? He just doesn't work like we think he works at all. And Jacob understood that and refused to follow the custom of the day. He said, no, we're going to follow the way God works and God blesses the younger and God blesses the unlikely. And that's what he did in this passage. There's a third part of this passage, and it's the last couple of verses in it. Verse um, 21 says, uh, uh, well, let's pick up verse, I, I didn't get verse 20 yet. So he blessed them that day, saying, by you Israel will uh, bless, saying, may God make you as Ephraim and Manasseh, and thus he said Ephraim before Manasseh, which is what I've been talking about. Now, the third part of the story begins in verse 21. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am dying, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of my fathers. Moreover, I have given to you one portion above your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Ammonites with the sword and my bow. So, in the last part of the passage, after he has, uh, first part is he adopts the grandchildren. The second part is he blesses the grandchildren, only he blesses the younger with a greater blessing than the older, which was backwards from the way it was normally done. And in the third part of the passage, he blesses Joseph by giving him a piece of property in the land. But again, that's an act of faith because he's now assuming that God is going to fulfill his promise and give his descendants the land and 
that Joseph will be back in the land. So he is again acting in faith. By the way, uh, I, I think uh, something struck me that has never struck me before in reading this passage. Um, the, he's making a will. I mean, right? He's, he's determining who gets what. And he says, hey, this is a piece of uh, property I took by the sword and by the bow. By the way, elsewhere it says he bought it, and maybe later he had to, uh, there are several explanations of how him, he ended up having to fight for it. But be all that as it may, um, <laughs> he's making out a will. He's giving his uh, property to his children, in this case, Joseph. So I just thought it was interesting uh, on one hand, it illustrates that he's believing God, that God is going to give his descendants the land. And in the second place, he's giving a little portion of it to Joseph, uh, which is an indication he was doing some estate planning, we would say today. At any rate, uh, he gave him this portion of the land above what he had given others, meaning he's giving him a double blessing. By the way, the New Testament uh, makes note of this. In John chapter 4, we're told that Jesus went through Samaria. And it says this, So he came to the city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, Sychar near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. It's in John chapter 4. So um, the New Testament recognizes that this is what happened. All right, um, a couple of interesting twists and turns in this thing. This passage can get a little complicated, but let me um, sum it up real simply and make an observation or two. I think this passage is teaching, very simply, that by faith, Jacob adopted his two grandchildren. He blessed them. And he gave the youngest of the two a double portion of the blessing. And on top of that, he promised Joseph to give him a special portion of the land. All of which is by faith. By faith, he adopted them. By faith, he blessed them. By faith, he gave Joseph a special portion of the land. They weren't in the land. They were in Egypt, so he is by faith assuming this is going to happen in the future, and by faith I'm giving it to you. All right, that's what's going on in the chapter. So what's the point for us? What's the point? One of the main points of this chapter is it explains the 12 tribes of Israel. This is very important. How many tribes were in Israel? I just told you. Twelve. Twelve. Where did those twelve tribes come from? How many sons did Jacob have? That's not a trick question. Twelve, right. But later in the Old Testament, when you start counting the tribes, one of the tribes is... Ephraim, 
And one of the tribes is Manasseh. So these two grandchildren get elevated, and one of those other tribes gets slighted. So this chapter explains where ultimately the 12 tribes come from and how the 12 tribes came to be. So that makes this uh, important. And the issue is this, that Ephraim and Manasseh have now the same standing as the sons of Jacob, not just grandsons. They become on an equal par as the sons of Jacob. And Joseph did not become the head of one of the tribes. So he gets dropped out, and these two get put in his place. All right, that's one observation. Another, which is the point I think we need to note. Jacob is an illustration of what it means to live by faith. I've pointed this out as we've gone through the passage, but let me mention it again. Number one, he believed God's word. God appeared to him. God gave him his word that he was going to bless him. He believed that word, and this whole chapter is his illustration of acting upon it. Number two, he understood God's ways. Living by faith is understanding God's ways. And I think this is where people get tripped up. There are a lot of ramifications of this, but I think Christians start out thinking God is going to bless them and they're not going to have trouble like other people. And then they encounter trials, severe trials sometimes, and they get thrown off. And that's because they don't understand God's way of working. One of those ways is that God uses trials to bring us to spiritual maturity. I talk about this all the time because I'm constantly explaining the Bible and it is all over the place. But if you don't understand this, if you don't understand the ways of God, then you start doubting God's word. So I get asked things like, well, how could God love me and let this happen to me? And you begin to doubt God's word because you don't understand the way God works. God works through trials. He allows those trials to come along because if we respond properly to them, that's how we grow to spiritual maturity. So walking by faith is not just believing God's word. Yeah, I believe the Bible is the word of God. It's understanding God's way of working and living accordingly. And the third thing that Joseph illustrates is he trusted God to carry out his promise. So he, by faith, blessed Joseph by giving him a special portion of the land. He, by faith, blessed his two grandchildren, even elevating them to sonship. He believed God would fulfill all of this later. And the New Testament picks this up as one great illustration of living by faith. 
Hebrews chapter 11 says, and I quote, By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. So the writer to the Hebrews says, this, this is a great illustration of living by faith. When he was dying, he blessed the sons of Joseph by faith. He believed that God would fulfill his promise through him to them. One commentator on this passage says, Believers who have matured in faith through a lifetime of experience in which the covenant God has shepherded and delivered them, no matter how difficult the maturing process may have been, can discern with confidence the purpose and plan of God for the future. Matter of fact, if you'll recall, right in the middle of this, Jacob said something about the Lord feeding me and guiding me through evil, and I said that word could be translated trouble. Jacob recognized that God used trouble to bring him to a place of mature faith, and that's understanding the way of God and not just the word of God. That same commentator goes on to say, the statement does not say that the believer will have the ability to predict the future. It merely says that the mature believer is familiar with God's ways, knows God's plan, and can prepare for the future with certain expectations. Another simple illustration would be knowing that there are rewards at the judgment seat of Christ, understanding that that's the way God works, that he will later say, well done, my good and faithful servant, should affect the way we believe that and act accordingly now. It's understanding God's way and believing it that affects the way we handle life in the present. In another day, another preacher said something that fits very well what I'm trying to say. So let me end by quoting him. What I'm after is that walking by faith is not just understanding God's word, it's understanding the way God works, which is revealed to us in his word. This preacher said, and I quote, we meet with these cross hands of blessing frequently in the scripture. The younger son blessed above the elder, as was needful, lest grace should become confounded with nature, and belief gradually grows up in man's minds that naturally effect would never be overcome by grace and that in every aspect grace waited upon nature. And these crossed hands we meet still, for how often does God reverse our order and bless most that about which we have the least concern, and seems to put a slight on that which has engrossed our best affections. 
it is not a perpetual, is it not a perpetual encouragement to us that God does not merely crown what nature has successfully begun? By the way, that's the one statement in this quote I really want you to get. Let me repeat it. Is it not a perpetual encouragement to us that God does not merely crown what nature has successfully begun? That it is not the likely and the natural good that are the most blessed, but that God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, the weak things of the world to confound the things that are mighty, and the base things of the world, the things which are despised, has God chosen, yea, the things which are not, to bring to naught the things that are. So we think that the ones that have an advantage are the strong and the wise and the naturally blessed with talent. And God turns it all upside down. And very often, no, usually, blesses the weak and those the world considers the foolish. Those who are considered the nothing to bring to pass the things that are. So God doesn't think like we do. God doesn't always act like we expect him to. Or to quote another prophet in the Old Testament, his thoughts, God's thoughts, are higher than our thoughts, and his ways are higher than our ways. And living by faith says, I want to understand not just the passage, not just the word, but I want to understand the ways of God so I can live accordingly. So it's not by might nor by power, to quote still another Old Testament prophet, but it's by my spirit, says the Lord. So we need to walk by faith in understanding not just what God says, but how God works. He works by his spirit when we are weak and don't know the answer and trust him. That is the way God works. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Joseph and Jacob, Ephraim, Manasseh, all these other stories that so vividly communicate to us that you just don't work like we normally think. So help us to change the way we think so it might be in line with the way you think. In Jesus' name, amen.